really standing with me out of respect for the word. Turn with me in the Bible to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, and today uh, we'll be examining verses 4 through 7. I'll just give you a heads up in advance. I, I can only get through the negatives here this morning, and then next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll look into the positive declaration of the embodiment of love in verses 4 through 7. So, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God, 1 Corinthians 13, beginning verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. And love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. And God had his rich blessing to his word. Let's ask for his help to understand. O God, whose blessed Son made himself known in the breaking of breath, Open the eyes of our faith that we may behold him in all his redeeming work. It's him who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. The great uh, Lutheran commentator, R.C.H. Olinsky, in the preface to his very helpful exposition of this passage, uh, makes a general comment about the whole way Paul expounds on the grace of love here in this passage, which orients our thinking uh, to what the Apostle Paul is aiming at and attempts to accomplish in the Church of Jesus Christ. And he says this, Paul shows us, how the inner heart of love looks when it is placed among sinful men and weak and needy brethren. He does not picture love in ideal surroundings of friendship and affection where individuals embrace and kiss the other, but in the hard surroundings of a bad world and a faulty church. That's the statement that I think captures the essence of what the Apostle is trying to accomplish here. He's teaching sinful people how to work out in concrete fashion love of Jesus Christ and gospel implications in the midst of a fallen world and a faulty church. Very helpful here because the Apostle, as he sits down to pin this letter on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sits down with pen and paper, not to give us a, a dictionary definition of love, and not to compose a ballad of love, uh, not to give us a philosophical treatise or discourse on love, but the aim here is thoroughly pastoral. And the reason why the aim here is thoroughly pastoral is because the Apostle Paul is addressing a church that is riddled with strife. It's filled with controversy, it's tearing apart at the seams with jealousy, it's brimming with arrogance and pride, and his aim is to show to the Corinthian believers that this is completely inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he aims to counteract this sinful and unloving way of, of living together in relationships in the church, and he does that in very practical terms. Showing these Corinthians how love bridges their differences and uh, patches up the problems and tamps down pride 
uh, so that believers can uh, live with one another in harmony. And to sort of help us uh, grasp that pastoral edge, uh, these remarks here on love, uh, we see here that it doesn't emerge well in translation, at least not in the New American Standard, but first of all, uh, the Apostle, as he speaks about love and reflects on love and expounds upon love, uses action verbs all throughout the context here. These are not nouns, and so that uh, indicates to us that the Apostle is not uh, drawing us into a situation where we'd be merely contemplative about the things he says, but he is attempting to initiate action. And so all of these action verbs here tell us something about love. And it's not something we just think about. It's something that we actually do. Love is being patient. Love is being kind. Love is not being jealous. Love is not bragging. Love is not being arrogant. You see, that's the sense of what he's uh, working with here. And to help us get our mind around this and to help us come to grips with how love works its way out, the Apostle is not only positive in terms of telling us what love is like when it's lived out, but he also shows us very practically in negative terms what love doesn't do. Because sometimes that's just as helpful as knowing what love does. What love doesn't do, the Apostle goes on to explain here in a series of eight verbs. In fact, the Apostle uses uh, more negatives than he does positives in telling us about the, uh, the love that is to be worked out in the church. He gives us seven attributes of love in terms of action verbs, and he gives us eight negatives about love to show us how it works. And of course, he does that all within the context of showing how love is to work its way out in terms of Relating. How do we relate to one another? How do we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord? How do we relate to one another as family members? How do we relate to one another as husbands and wives? How do fathers and mothers relate to children? How do children relate to their parents? How do we as Christians relate to sinful people around us? Uh, that's the aim of the Apostle here this morning. So this is not uh, Hallmark greeting card stuff. This is about telling sinful uh, believers how to treat sinful people in a sinful world. You see, and that's what the Apostle here is working on to correct us. And uh, This morning, uh, we're going to focus on uh, the negation of love. And as I said already, there are eight of them. And we won't be able to spend equal time on all eight terms, but what we're going to do is sort of uh, define and illustrate best as we can Uh, from the Word of God, how these things work out and teach us uh, to learn to live with one another in love. And so we begin with the first negation of love. You can see that in verse 4. The Apostle, first of all, says this. Love is not jealous. Love is not being jealous. And the word jealous means strong envy and resentment of somebody. Strong envy and resentment. You think about uh, this and you realize... It's not a surprise that the Apostle Paul begins with jealousy. When he begins to talk about the negative aspect of love in terms of how it works its way out in personal relationships. And it's not surprising at all, first of all, because uh, jealousy is the battery acid of good relationships. It's what destroys, it's what uh, tears down uh, relationships. 
You show me a relationship with a jealous person, and I'll show you a relationship. If it's not today in turmoil, it very soon will be. And the reason why jealousy is the battery acid of relationships is because uh, jealousy is rooted in insecurity. When people feel insecure about themselves, uh, whether it's their looks or their body or their brains or their experiences or their money or their possessions or their abilities or their accomplishments or their friends or their associations, and you can just go down the list, it'd be very long. When people become insecure about these things, a jealousy begins to take root, and when jealousy begins to take root in the heart, it begins to attack. And you see, jealousy is manifested and works its way out in life and in relationships very concretely in between two uh, polarities, between attack on the one hand and victimization on the other. And so jealous people tend to, uh, when they feel deeply insecure about themselves, attack everybody around them or attack people who are close to them in their personal relationships in order to feel some sense of relief. And when the attack doesn't work out so well and things begin to go bad as a result of the attack and they swing back over to victimization they begin to uh, explain to themselves the reason why everything is going downhill in the relationships is because people are being mean to them. You see, it's dangerous when jealousy begins to enter into the heart when it's nourished when it's not addressed because... It begins uh, to corrode relationships and to become toxic. And that's what's happened in court. Uh, you remember, and it was a long time ago, so uh, we'll forgive you if you don't. Uh, but back in chapter 1, the apostle notes uh, already, it begins to hint here at the problem of this, uh, of this corrosiveness in the Corinthian relationships. Uh, you see that in, in, in verse 10 of chapter 1 and following. After the apostle commends them and, and speaks well of how the grace of Christ is, is with what's toxic. He begins to deal with what's destructive of the relationships. He says, love isn't jealous. And that's where we have to begin this morning. We have to look into ourselves. The deep-seated insecurities in our hearts and minds. Oh, you can answer that. Are there deep-seated insecurities in our hearts and minds that, uh, that we nourish and that we return to and we think about and that agitate us and that irritate us? Are those beginning to work their way out in terms of how we treat people? And only you can answer that question, and if you can answer that question the positive, and you do have struggles and problems, you better begin to deal with that. You better begin to squash it right now, because if you don't, that spills out into brokenness in your relationships, and it brings damage and harm, and it, it causes people not to live in, in harmony and peace and love. The Apostle Paul would exhort you this morning, love is not jealous. Love is not being jealous. And if that's there, it needs to be repented of and turned away from and replaced. So Paul says, first of all, love is not being jealous. And second of all, he says, love, in verse 4, does not brag and it's not arrogant. And you think about that a second and you realize that's the polar opposite of jealousy. 
if jealousy is rooted in deep-seated insecurity, uh, a pride and arrogance is rooted in an exalted sense of self. Some people have exalted sense of self. A very colorful word, word here uh, that stands behind arrogance. It means to inflate or puff up. And whenever I think of that concept, I think of frogs. Uh, kind of a strange association, maybe, but if you get it, you, you realize how it, it connects sort of vividly. Uh, when we were a kid, when we grew up, there were all these uh, uh, fields and irrigation ditches. And in the summertime, they flowed with water. And so if you walked along the ditches, you would notice sitting on the bank, sometimes in the shade, sometimes in the sun, these huge bullfrogs. And they would sit there along the banks, uh, the sun themselves or whatever, and to wait for bugs or flies or whatever. But uh, oftentimes when you see these very large bullfrogs, their mouths would be closed, and this huge air bubble began to protrude out from uh, their bodies. This uh, chest inflated, you see. That's the concept of pride and arrogance here. It's to have an inflated chest, to be puffed up, to be filled uh, with a sense of self-exaltation. I remember a gentleman uh, who used to really enjoy irritating his uh, believing family members by singing uh, to him how great thou art uh, to himself. Uh, that's exalted sense of self. And again, the Corinthians have a tremendous problem with this. Again, if you go back to chapter 1, you see that uh, this is a problem that the Apostle Paul uh, begins to address telegraphing to us in the end of that first chapter that this is a problem among the Corinthians as well. Because he says in verse 26, he says, Consider your calling, brethren, uh, that there were not many wise among you according to the flesh. There's not many mighty. There's not many noble. A God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. And here is the purpose line here. So that no one would boast. So that no one would boast. But you see, that, that, that sticks a, a knife or a stake to the heart of the problem that is also in the Corinthian church. On one hand, you have the insecure, jealous people. On the other hand, you have the proud, boastful people. On the other hand, the apostle addresses both of them in the first chapter. He says to the people who are now in this camp over here, the self-exalted ones, he said, God didn't choose you because of your, because of your excellence. God didn't choose you because you were mighty. God didn't choose you because you were wise. God didn't choose you because you were noble. In fact, God chose you because you were foolish. It's just the opposite of what you're thinking. It's not because of what was in yourself. It's not because you were great. It's not because you're self-exalting. It's because you wanted to glorify His name and manifest the excellency of His grace that He chose of the foolish and the weak and the ignorant and the debased and the despised, the things that are not. And you see, these Corinthians have been Christians for about five minutes now. And they're grabbing all the glory for themselves. This is not the only time that Paul addresses the problem of arrogance. He has to address it repeatedly. 
six of the seven uses of this Greek word arrogant in the entire New Testament are used in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 4, verse 6, we learned that uh, some uh, Corinthians are being arrogant against other Christians. Chapter 4, verse 18, we learned that some of the Corinthians are arrogant against Paul. Chapter 5, verse 2, we, we learn that there's one who's so arrogant, he's not even aware of the fact that he's in uh, deep-seated sexual immorality because he's sleeping with his stepmother. And we learn in chapter 8 of the arrogance spilling out in terms of those who are puffed up with pride because they think they have knowledge, and by the way they're acting in terms of a meat sacrifice to idols, they're causing a dear brothers in Christ to stumble and fall in their relationship with Jesus and perhaps a tangle with the problem and temptation of going back to the worship of idols. So this is a real problem. Remember, as we said at the beginning of this exposition, it's all about how terms of people are relating to one another in the church. He says, this is not, this is not proper. The Christians are to work out the gospel implications of love in their life and it's not about being arrogant. You think about it, it's really shocking in a sense. It's really shocking in a sense that, that a Christian could be arrogant. You know, I, I have some sense of how it could be that a Christian could feel insecure about themselves. I understand that. And I understand in a sense how, how insecurity could uh, lead to jealousy. But as I think about the concept of arrogance, it defies all sanctified logic and common sense that a believer could be arrogant. Whatever you have, whatever you have, it's all by the grace of God. Whatever you have, you have it because it's a gift. If you you have great looks, you have it from God by grace. If you have great strength, you have it by God, by grace, if you have a great wealth and material positions because of the kindness of providence, if you have an abundance of spiritual fruit in your life, it's all by the grace of God. Whatever you have, the Apostle says, it's all from God. How could you be arrogant? How could love act in arrogance? It's repulsive. So Paul... Secondly, after he rebukes jealousy, he says, that's going to destroy your relationships. That's going to destroy your relationships. He comes alongside the, the polar opposite and says, so will arrogance. So will those who are self-secure, self-exalting, selfish people. He says, love is not arrogant. It doesn't behave arrogantly. But then the third thing he addresses here is he says that love... It does not act unbecomingly. Love does not act unbecomingly. And that's a big term. The only other time this particular word is used in the New Testament is back in chapter 7, verse 36, where uh, Paul talks about how if a man was engaged to a woman, he wouldn't act unbecomingly if he went ahead and married her. Remember, there was that whole debate about uh, whether they should get married and whether sex was proper and all of this. And the Apostle Paul said, yes, within the framework of marriage, 
that if you don't have the gift of celibacy, uh, being married is the proper and right thing to do. So in that sense, the Apostle Paul says, well, you're not acting unbecomingly if you do that. Uh, but the most commentators believe that this is sort of a stretchy term and that you could tuck uh, a lot of kind of things under this category. And so basically what unbecomingly would include uh, are things that are morally reprehensible as well as things that are socially destructive. And so he says love doesn't act unbecomingly. In other words, it doesn't act out in morally reprehensible ways and neither does it act out in ways that are destructive uh, to personal relationships. And so this is a signal to uh, believers that we have to apply ourselves to the study of the people who we live with. We need to learn how to uh, interact with each other in socially appropriate ways so that we're not always destroying destroying and tearing down by our behaviors because of our, our sloppiness and how we treat each other. So we need to think about our behaviors as we relate to others within the context of our relationships. You see, I think the Apostle here is aiming at, in some ways, an unbecoming behavior that acts out in foolish or crass or, or idiotic ways to say, you need to think. You need to think about how you act around others so that your actions are conducive to the reinforcing of relationships and the health of relationships and to building others up. So one way you act around people who are trying to have adult conversations and then you act a different way on the ball field. That's, that's understandable. There's context to our actions. Paul says we need to we need to think about that. Love considers others. Love in honor prefers another and learns how to to live with others in a way that promotes a healthy, solid relationships. Paul says love does not act unbecomingly. And the next thing he says about love in terms of the negative side in verse 5, he says a love doesn't seek its own. A love doesn't seek its own. John Calvin here, as usual, has a, a very brilliant insight in terms of the outworking of what Paul is saying here. He says Paul doesn't here reprove every kind of care or concern for self but the excess of it, which proceeds from an immoderate and blind attachment to ourselves. He says, the excess of a blind attachment to ourselves is if we think of ourselves so as to neglect others. If we so uh, magnify sense of self and a commitment to promoting ourselves that we don't take time to stop and think of others. That's the sense of what Paul is after. He says love does not seek its own. In other words, love doesn't get so involved and so wrapped up in pursuing its own desires and self-interests that it gives no thought at all to how uh, the actions that they're performing may involve harm to other people. And again, this is uh, illustrated back in chapter 10. We spent some time with this as we worked through this entire section on a meat offered to idols and how that's, uh, the principles there are to help us learn how to uh, live in Christian liberty. 
But Paul illustrates this principle here in, in chapter 13 when he says love does not seek its own. Uh, he illustrates that already back in chapter 10, verse 24. He gives us the principle there. He says, uh, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. See, there's the principle that the Apostle Paul is referring to here. He talks about it in principle terms there, and he illustrates it. Love doesn't seek its own. He says, let no one seek his own good. And then he goes on to spell that out in terms of concrete action. And, of course, the context is about a situation where an unbeliever invites somebody over to their home for a barbecue, and, and there he's offering meat, or rather he's barbecuing meat that he's bought, and that meat had previously been offered in an idol's temple as part of a sacrificial uh, routine. And he says to the believer, it's okay if you partake of that meat, but he says, just don't ask questions about it. But he says, if you run into a fellow believer there, and that fellow believer says to you, by the way, that the meat here at the barbecue has been sacrificed to idols, the Apostle Paul says, don't eat. Now, the reason here is important, and it ties in to reinforce the entire point of the passage. He says, don't eat, not because it's wrong for you, not because it's, it's morally reprehensible, he says it's because of the conscience problem in the other believer. They are concerned about it. And they feel as if they partake of that meat, they are partaking of fellowship with demons. He says, for the sake of them, don't eat. See, that is not seeking your own good. That is a perfect principled illustration by the, given by the Apostle here of what it means when he says love doesn't seek its own good. It doesn't place its desire for barbecued meat above the conscience and the spiritual well-being of a brother or sister in Christ. Well, how are you going to know that? How are you going to know whether the way you're living is, is, is a is an impediment, a spiritual impediment to a fellow believer. Well, you have to get to know people. You have to think about people. You have to show concern for others. It's living a life that's not so absorbed with self, we just never take any time to think of anybody else around us. Now, we have a few more to go here. I can already tell that there's a great heaviness here. This is hard. This is very negative. And I I just want to stop right here and say, I understand that. This is very uh, convicting stuff because by by nature, by by the fact of our sinfulness, we're so prone uh, to live exactly how Paul says, don't live. If you're living under the great weight of of a heavy conscience right now, I understand that. And we should. We should feel the weight of our sin. We, we should feel the conviction of sin. And we're going we're gonna to run to the cross of Christ. And then, but we have, we have to hear Jesus' admonition to, to us. He says, if you are going to be united to me, there's things that are going to have to change in your life. As I fill you with my grace, there has to be change. And just as Jesus Christ didn't come to this earth to be self-seeking, to be self-serving to others, he is saying, this is the restoration that has to occur in you. If you're to bear my image, this is how it works out. You don't seek your own. Because you're not your own. 
But that's the fact. You don't seek your own because you're not your own. You're bought with the price, with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is able to say in Galatians chapter 2, it's not I who live anymore. I have been crucified with the cross of Christ. That's not me living anymore. It's Jesus Christ living in me. And if that's what's happening, it's a change of life. If Christ is in you this morning, the Apostle would say, that love doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't seek its own. And love seeks the good of its neighbor. It's not selfish. Here's a self-revealing comment. Paul also says love is not provoked easily. This is for those who have difficulty here. It's a tremendous admonition to those who have difficulty here. Now, love isn't irritable. Maybe a great blessing to you that you're not in the category of people who are easily irritated. But I know somebody personally who is. Um, yes. There's some of us who are hardwired to be easily irritated. Easily stirred up to disputing. It's okay to have righteous indignation. It's okay. It has to be controlled and disciplined in such a way that we don't sin in it. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about righteous indignation. He's talking about the opposite. He says love isn't easily irritated. Love doesn't easily go from, from zero to angry in two seconds. It just doesn't do that. So another, another very penetrating admonition. Uh, love isn't easily irritated. And if uh, you have that problem, the apostle would say, you've got to put it to death. You've got to put it to death. That's not being Christ-like. We're going to see next week how love is, is patient. We're going to see how that uh, is not about patience in terms of dealing with uh, difficulties in our life. There, there's one aspect where Paul says, yeah, it, it does endure all things at the end of verse 7. And that's, that's the kind of enduring with the hard circumstances of life. But when he talks about love being patient, he talks about love being patient with others. So the opposite of this is love being patient. We'll get to that next week. A Lord willing, but here he says, love isn't that uh, irritable. It's patient. The other thing here the Apostle says negatively about love is that it doesn't take into account wrongs suffered. That's the next thing the Apostle says. Love doesn't take into account wrongs suffered. A valuable, highly, highly, highly valuable, a component part of of living with other people in personal relationships is that you have a short memory. 
very, very essential component to living with people in a peaceful way is that you have a very, very short memory, that you don't run around uh, keeping a, a mental spreadsheet, a mental Microsoft Excel spreadsheet in your mind where you have these rows and columns and ledgers of debts and credit, credits and, and we're constantly marking down the debts. We're constantly remembering uh, the problems with others, that we're constantly regarding sins of others against us, taking them into account. And that word here, account, is to impute to them. It's the sense that we take note of and that we, we think about and we place it in the debt category. And it's one of those lists that we keep going back to. It's that little black book thing. We keep running back to it. We keep remembering uh, what has happened in the past. You see, and we go back to it and we nourish anger and hostility, rivalry and contention towards others. We go back to the lists of wrong. We become historical Christians. You say, what do you mean? Historical Christians. You see, the kind of person who takes account of of wrongs is an historical Christian. One preacher tells about a a couple that came to his study one day to receive some marriage counseling. And after he sat them down, he he told the couple to just sort of, in broad terms, lay out the problems. And first of all, he allowed the, uh, the wife to state her concerns and the difficulties in their situation. And so uh, she uh, unfolded the laundry list of, of problems and difficulties. And, and after she was done sort of uh, mapping out the terrain of the problems, he turns to the man and he says, okay, from your perspective, what's the problem in your relationship? And he says, well, preacher, i got to tell you, uh, the main thing wrong with our relationship is that when we fight, she gets historical. And the preacher stopped him and said, no, 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 you mean hysterical, right? And he said, no, historical. Because every time we start arguing, she just keeps on bringing up the past. She's historical, you see. Now, I don't mean to say that to, to put down women because uh, men are just as bad at being historical as women are. It's just the illustration that the preacher told us. But the point of the story illustrates here what the apostle says here about love. It's not historical. It doesn't have a calendar where it checks off and remembers the date and the time and the location and the reason and the context and all of the component parts of the offense. And it just uh, categorizes these and lists them and it, and it makes it handy for us to go back and to achieve a particular problem to a particular place and apply it to a particular specific a contemporary situation. Paul says that's not what love's about. Love is forgetful. Love is forgetful, he says. You see, what the apostle is doing, he's working on the analogy of divine forgiveness here. He says, your love is to be like God's. And God's memory is forgetful when it comes down to our sin. The Old Testament puts it so beautifully. He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west to remember them no more. More vividly, the apostle, or rather the prophet, says that he casts all of our sins into a sea of forgetfulness. And that's what uh, the cross is all about. 
Jesus going there on our behalf so that the Father casts all of our sins into a sea of forgetfulness. And that's what you're to do, is to cast all of the wrongs against you into a sea of forgetfulness. The Apostle illustrates this in another uh, uh, respect in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says that we are to be forgiving to one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. See, there again, gospel implications being worked out in relationships. Forgetful. We are to be forgetful Christians. Not historical Christians. That's also not easy. Because I bet most of us have this problem where we take in so much sensory data that our minds are so overloaded with data it feels like our hard drive and our memory slows down and uh, we get forgetful. But the problem is we have pretty good software for memory when it comes to offenses committed against us. We have a pretty good retrieval system. The apostle says that you need to get rid of that retrieval system. Love, love takes no account of wrongs. Love is about... uh, exemplifying the divine love towards us, casting the sins into the sea and forgetfulness. Well, finally, he says, uh, verse 6, love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Uh, the, the interpreters are, are sort of divided here. Charles Hogg represents pretty much one category where he says, uh, this refers to anything which is not conformed to the standard of Righteousness and includes all form of moral evil. So in other words, wherever we see uh, moral evil, we never rejoice in it. There's probably some truth in that angle, but others would say, wait a second, Uh, because this particular negation of love is balanced immediately with this contrast in the other half of verse 6 saying, uh, but it rejoices with truth. They say that contrast reflects backward on what the Apostle is saying here. So basically, uh, the other component of interpreters would say, well, what Paul is saying is that um, we don't rejoice in falsehood. Well, it doesn't, I guess, matter a whole lot in a sense. Whether it's we don't rejoice in falsehood or we don't rejoice more broadly in all forms of, of unrighteousness. Either way, love doesn't do it. And uh, that's where we're going to end our exposition this morning. Maybe just a few words in conclusion. First of all, we really should listen to this list and evaluate our life in terms of it. And Paul does talk about the negations of love for, for a purpose here. And that's so that we would be convicted. He's convicting the Corinthians. He's saying, you're acting this way. And the reason why there's so much division in your church is because you're acting this way. And one aim of this is, is to call them to repentance. 
And you know, that's what the law does to us. Uh, we hear about the divine standards of righteousness. The, the point really, first of all, is always to drive us uh, to Jesus Christ in conscious awareness of our sin. And so what this is designed to do is to take each and every one of us here as individuals uh, straight to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when we hear about all of these things here in our passage this morning, we need to not be thinking about other people. We need to not impute these to everybody else around us or the people that we're in relationship with. Really what we need to be doing is hearing them about ourselves and saying, yes, I need to flee to Jesus Christ crucified and finding him a refuge as a propitiation from our, for our sin. And so the first thing this morning, people of God, this passage declares Christ to us negatively by saying, if you're doing these things, uh, you need to run to the cross of Jesus Christ to get forgiveness. Secondly, our passage this morning uh, preaches uh, Jesus Christ to us not just as a propitiation, and not just as a redeemer, but it preaches Jesus Christ to us this morning as a sanctifier. As the one who embodies these to perfection, who is now working these things out in our life. Just think about this. I want to sort of reframe this passage for you mentally a second so that you can make that connection to how this passage is all about, ultimately, Jesus Christ. And it's pretty easy to reframe our thinking about this and to see what I'm talking about. Take not out of all the negative phrases here. And it would read something like this. Love is jealous. Love does brag. Love is arrogant. Love does act unbecomingly. Love does seek its own. Love is easily provoked. Love does take into account wrong suffer. Love does not rejoice. Or rather, love does rejoice in unrighteousness, you see. You take all the negatives out, and then you put those in front of the positives, and then you get love is not patient. Love is not kind. Love does not rejoice in truth. Love does not bear all things. Love does not believe all things. Love does not hope all things. Love does not endure all things. That reframes your conceptions of love pretty quick, doesn't it? You see, and if that's really how it was, it would fit perfectly, in a sense, with our natural inclinations and impulses as sinful people. Because we are exactly all of those things. But you know, when we look to Jesus Christ, who is the perfect embodiment of these things, of true love, we realize that love could never be that way. But Jesus Christ did not come to seek and to serve himself. Jesus Christ came for sinners, to serve sinners, to bless sinners, to show what kindness really is in action, to bear our sins, to endure the shame of the cross for us, to really show us, in a sense, the heart of of God to us. You know, as as John puts it, in 1 John chapter 4, he says, uh, God is love, and he says, this is how we know. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus has come to show us the heart of God and to show us and to reproduce in us that heart. And so when um, we feel the pain of conviction when we hear these things, it's okay. 
because it causes us to flee to Jesus Christ as a refuge, not only for salvation, but sanctification. And as Jesus reproduces his life in us, there's going to be some pain of our conscience because we're going to have to realize these things are inconsistent with Jesus. The more he fills us with his grace, the more these things will be stripped away from our hearts and minds and the more he reproduces uh, in us his own image, which is patience, kindness, rejoicing in truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, and adoring all things. So that's the construction process of sanctification. And that uh, we grow in that as we come to embrace Christ, not just as a savior, the sanctifier. By the grace of God, we get to do that right now as we come to Christ to receive him. Not only in his word this morning, but his holy sacrament. Let's think about these things as we come to the table of the Lord. Let's take a moment to pray. Our Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we find in him a Savior who is the propitiation of our sin for the purpose of revealing to us the very heart of God that you are loved. And we thank you for this declaration this morning of the beauty of love as we see it in terms of its old contrast. We thank you and praise you this morning, Heavenly Father, this God. You have redeemed us from sin, guilt, and from its ugliness, power, deforming, deforming power. We pray, Lord, that uh, you help us to flee from these ways, and that you would reshape and reform our lives into the glorious image of Jesus Christ, as we by faith grab hold of him and grow in union with him. Father, be great.